Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. So, Alistair... Sewage dumping, this is a question you like. (laughs) Clive Fenton, I'm sure you'll be aware of all the news covering the dumping of sewage into our country's waterways and onto our beaches. I understand you voted to support this approach in a recent vote this year, did you? In Parliament, is that correct? I'd like to understand why, and given I, I imagine this may be addressed at me, I'm only teasing you. I'd like to understand why, and given the absolute mess, what actions you're going to take to reverse this unacceptable situation. So, Clive, I'm not actually a sitting MP, so I haven't been a member of the British Parliament since 2019, so I certainly did not vote to support this approach in a recent vote this year in Parliament. However, it is a good subject, and one that's worth talking about. Um, basically, at the heart of it, I believe, is the incredible, lamentable underinvestment in our sewerage system, which means that the whole British sewerage system at the moment and has for a long time depended, if there's an overflow, in discharging raw sewage into water. And fixing this, and I was the environment minister, so I spent a lot of time looking at this issue, is an issue of tens of billions of pounds. The number that was thrown at me was something like 23, 25 billion pounds, which, uh, to put it in context, um, is, I don't know, the entire uh, prison budget four times over would have wow. to go into fixing this. So it's, it's, it's not a small amount of money, and it would be interesting to see a cross-party approach to put the funding in place to get it together. And I think there's another thing that isn't communicated to the public, which is that um, being a bit unfair to colleagues in the Treasury, but the the impression I got from the Treasury was that they thought that £23 billion wasn't worth it for the health benefits that you derive from not putting the sewage into the water. Question here related from Lee Williams. Your thoughts on water companies charging the customer £10 billion over 10 years to repair antiquated network despite withdrawing over £50 billion in dividends over the last 10 years. I think this is what gets people really angry, Rory. This, this is, of all the privatisations, I think this is the one that really gets people's goat. And I think that, that people just feel that these water companies have been absolutely in it for the money, haven't really invested for the long term, and sort of stop care. At some point, they stop caring about the quality of water. And of course, if you have somebody like Therese Coffey as the minister, who always seems to me like somebody who... It's almost like everything is happening around her as though it's got nothing to do with, oh, yeah, well, it's not very good, is it? But it's better than it was. Or it's, you know, we've got, she actually went on television the other day and said, we've got the cleanest bathing water we've ever had. Well, you then look at these maps of where this SHIT is being pumped out in massive quantities. And as you know, I'm a cold water swimmer and we're always looking for new places. And yep. you can't even, you can't even get the data now as to what is clean and what isn't. I think the government's completely underestimating this issue as a, as a real problem for them. I mean, it is a really interesting issue. The, the one that I was completely obsessed with was air quality, because when I was the minister, it became clear that at least 26,000 people a year were dying prematurely from air pollution. Mm. But I remember doing a debate with Diane Abbott in the House of Commons, and she was saying, it's absolutely disgusting that air pollution is you know, worse than it's ever been. And I had to say, actually, that isn't true. And sounding a bit like Therese Coffey, of course, the truth is air quality is much, much better than it was 20 years ago, 
30 years ago, 40 years ago. It was unbelievably bad, the nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide that was in our air. And of course, you go back to the the famous smogs and fogs of Victorian mm. Britain. That that was air pollution. That wasn't that wasn't weather. What Dickens thought was part of the traditional London weather was simply uh, industrial pollution. Um, so it is also true that actually our beaches and water have, on many indicators, improved over the last twenty thirty years. But our expectations are also understandably expanding all the time. So just as I don't think it's good enough to say we don't need to do anything on air because it was worse in the past. Well, 26,000 people are still dying prematurely. And you can make the same argument around sewage. Yes, it may well be that our bathing water is cleaner than it was in the past. I mean, the Thames famously is much cleaner than it was in the early 80s. And we've built a huge super sewer under the Thames, being built four billion pound super sewer under the Thames, which make it even cleaner. But I think the public still want things better than that, don't they? Yeah. Now, Kirsty Sivapalan. I've just ordered Alice's book, thank you. As somebody who's disabled and lives with a chronic illness, ME, which limits mobility and exertion, what can I realistically do? Do you know of any active, disabled, chronically sick politician role models to inspire people like me? Actually, there is a. When you read the book, Kirsty, you'll find that I have a, a section where I pay tribute to three of my favourite MPs Jack Ashley, who was profoundly deaf, David Blunkett, who was as we all know, blind and did, was one of our best ministers by a long way. And Anne Begg, MP up in Aberdeen, who I suspect was in there when in Parliament with you, Rory. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, was in in a in a wheelchair. And I, I don't know if um, you may know Rory. I also know politicians who struggle with mental health problems. I don't know of any who's who have ME. Uh, we don't know whether you do, Rory, but I I don't think we should think that that it's impossible to be a member of Parliament with a chronic illness. No, I mean, well, so the, the, one of the one of the um, one of the striking examples in my intake is Paul Maynard, um, who uh, has cerebral palsy. Uh, yeah. He was strangled by an umbilical cord at birth, um, developed epilepsy, and has been a very effective MP. And he was a minister in justice, minister in transport, a very bright guy. I mean, it's not easy. And and there have been times where he's felt that he's suffered real abuse as a politician. I'm afraid to say also actually abuse from the Labour benches when he's been speaking. But he's a real example of somebody who's overcome extraordinary difficulties to be a powerful MP. Now, uh, here's a question for you. Charlotte, what are Rory and Alice's views on Keir Starmer's plans to allow more building on the Greenbelt? I live on the Wirral. There are applications to build houses on our Greenbelt land, which are extremely unpopular with myself and local residents. I've always voted Labour and was planning to at the next election, but Starmer's comments made me think twice. Where are you on building on the green belt? I think I'm moving towards it. I don't see how we... I, I, I as you know, love the great landscapes. I think a lot of the when we talk about the green belt, we're not necessarily talking about great landscapes. We're talking about land that has been protected from certain forms of building uh, into which there has already been a sense of in, encroachment. And I think as long as we do have proper environmental policies then at some point, given the housing crisis in this country, we are going to have to look at it. I'm on the other side of this. So I think the Greenbelt has been an amazing thing around our cities. I think it stopped urban sprawl. It was a really smart move. If I look at a city like Nagoya, where I was yesterday, and see what happens when there isn't adequate protection around, and a lot of American cities, you can really see how the sprawl continues endlessly. I'd like us to be more imaginative. I agree. A lot of the Greenbelt band is substandard land. So I'd like to see Keir Starmer put in his manifesto. In fact, you and I should write a manifesto for Keir Starmer. But 
in its manifesto, a commitment to plant the Greenbelt around London with the largest forest in England. We could put in 500 million trees, we could transform air quality, we could have an impact on climate, we could have an incredible impact on leisure um, by putting the Greenbelt to proper use. So it's not just sitting there as sort of half abandoned land, but get a beautiful, beautiful grand forest planted there. Okay, listen, Harry Diamond, what does a UK cabinet minister in 2023 have to do to get the sack? As in, no resignation given or accepted, plain outright, you're fired. What do you think a minister would actually have to do to get the boot without any sense of... If I think of Ron Davis when he went for a walk on Clapham Common, that ended up in him being sacked. We had... uh, But when was the last sacking in this government? I think Ron Davis is unfortunate because I think Ron Davis is... Uh, a legacy from a period where uh, the press were pushing for ministers who were gay and he was stuck in a, a problem about not being comfortable coming out. I think that that wouldn't happen today. Mm. And I think ministers are much less likely to be forced to resign over affairs. Although I guess Matt Hancock had to resign, but that was connected with um, breaking COVID regulations. Um, what would it take to drive people out? Well, I mean, there have been, remember, the number of people have gone, have resigned or been sacked. Nadim Zahawi went about his tax affairs. Yeah, but they always go after a long, drawn out, try to defend them and keep going. There's, it was, there's not, there's not a sort of, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing seems to be cut and dried anymore. And this, this whole thing about the Sunak appears to be sort of using the ethics advisor in much the way as previous Tory prime ministers have done to sort of say, let's see if we can sort of kick the process into the long grass a bit. Oh, I'm not sure that's fair. I think this ethics advisor, Laurie Magnus, is is not only pretty good, but pretty quick. Mm. I mean, I, I know people suspected that, but actually what happened with Nadim Zahabi is I think he was back within four days. Right. And as soon as he produced his report, Nadim Zahabi went. No, I, th- I think that's working pretty efficiently. It's not kicking it into long grass like a royal mm. commission or something. Okay. James O'B, who's the most intimidating person you both come across in politics? <laughs> is that James was- O'Brien? No, I don't think it is James O'Brien. I think James O'Brien is called James O'B on social media, but I don't think this is James O'Brien. The most intimidating person. I'm going for Helmut Kohl. I found him incredibly intimidating. More, more than more than Vladimir Putin. Yeah, yeah. Partly because of his physicality, I think he was very. And, he, and I don't mean intimidating, by the way, in a in a Dominic Raab type way of bullying and aggression. Just incredibly intimidating because of his size. And he, there was a power about him that sort of emanated. I, fi- I find him very intimidating, yeah. Well, I, I put my money I, on the leader of Zimbabwe. I, I was the first minister to meet uh, President Mnangagwa after his inauguration. And he killed his first man, I think, when he's 14 or 15, and then led Mugabe's security service. And at that period when he came in, there was a real desire to believe that now that Mugabe had stepped down, that Monagago was going to lead a new liberal opening, that they were going to open up economically and politically and run clean elections. And he marched in to see me with two men in full military uniform on either side of him, sat down, and he began talking about uh, Laura Kabila and his time in military training camps in Angola in the 1970s and early 80s. And I sort of remembered you know, and I gently try to suggest in the, the weird way that British ministers are supposed to, that maybe we should allow Zimbabweans outside the country to vote and we should have independence electoral monitors in. And he looked at me with a sort of extraordinary sort of mingled pity experience uh, and slight sort of derision. 
And I, I left mm. the room thinking that the idea that we were going to get amazing reforms out of a man called Emerson the Crocodile Monongagua <laughs> was not very likely. Well, but the one the one that I almost said, but but I didn't want to, was also Zimbabwe, and, was, and that was Mugabe. But it wasn't. I didn't feel intimidated by him. I felt utterly repelled and revolted. It's one of the most expensive suits I've ever seen. You've got a good eye for expensive suits, haven't you? You're always noting them on Michael Heseltine. Who else did you think had an expensive suit? Philip recently? Hammond. Philip I saw Hammond, Philip Hammond yeah. recently. He had a very expensive, very, very expensive suit. And what's the sign of an expensive suit as a man that doesn't notice these things? What do you notice about expensive suits? Oh, it's the cut. You can tell. You can tell. It's just very, very, very well cut. And the cloth sort of... I noticed with Philip Hammond, for example, we did a panel together and we were sitting down maybe for about two hours. But I noticed that when he stood up, it still looked like he'd just put it on. It was the weight of the cloth. It was, I mean, I don't know, I could be, maybe it was Marks and Spencer's, but I don't think so. So Mugabe was wearing this incredibly expensive suit and it was at the Chogham, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Edinburgh. And his first question was on the lines of, why did Tony Blair surround himself with nothing but homosexuals? Jonathan Powell and I were both sort of very confused as to why he was asking us this question. But so, and then he, then he went out and did a briefing about Tony Blair's gay mafia. All very, oh, very, uh, very um, odd. Gosh, goodness gracious me. I did say, yeah. Oliver Merriman, year abroad story for Alistair. I am, like you were, a student of modern languages at Keyes College in Cambridge. Is that Gonville and Keyes, right? That's that wrong? the one. That's where Gonville I Gonville and Keyes College, Cambridge, yeah. where you went, right? Yeah. September, I'm going on my year abroad and would therefore love to know the most memorable story you might have from the time you spent on your year abroad and as a modern linguist at Cambridge University. It was one of the best years of my life. Totally random. All the students were given the choice of having a year abroad in a school, uh, teaching English for 12 hours a week, or going to a university. I went for the school. It's then total potluck about where you get sent. And I, I got sent to a school in Nice. So I had a year living in Nice, down by the port, and it was absolutely wonderful. The highlight moment, in a bizarre sort of way, was probably when I realized that I could make a very, very good living as a busker. Because I had my bagpipes. With, with your yeah, pipes? I had my bagpipes. I went and found a very quiet place out in the open, but a sort of random car park in the middle of nowhere, tuned them up, started playing them just for my own entertainment. And this crowd came out and started throwing money into the into the box. And I thought, oh, my God. What, you, you were just practicing? I was just practicing. So that evening I went to the, I went to the uh, Promenade des Anglais and then Rue Masséna, which is the sort of pedestrian precinct, and I stood there playing my pipes. <laughs> I thought, God, I could make an absolute fortune. So I then, what I did, I persuaded the head teacher of the school, can I pack my 12, day, 12 hours into one and a half days? And then the rest of the year, I just spent the time traveling around Europe, making a lot of money with my backpacks. And that's how you made, made your fortune. Well, fortune overstates it. So Rory, if you're asking me specific questions aimed at me, Carl Wiseman, could Rory please share a few of his lessons from staying overnight with ordinary people during his mayoral campaign? Yeah, so that, that, thank you. So this was something called Come Kit With Me. And I put out a tweet saying I'd love to uh, be invited to stay in people's houses. And about 6,000 people wrote back almost immediately. And there were lovely emails coming in from people saying, there were often very long emails trying to explain why I should be staying with them and what I'd learned by staying with them. But it was really eye-opening. I stayed with a cooperative for older women up in North London. I stayed on the sofa of a guy's family flat in Wandsworth where he was living with his parents and his sister and a younger brother in a two-bedroom council house. Did, 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 you check, did you have anybody check them out before you went? Um, yes, yeah, someone from our team would, would call them. When you're an MP, obviously you're often 
leaflettings. You knock on a door and you put a leaflet through and you ask a couple of questions and you move on. If you stay in someone's house, you have the whole night and the morning and you talk late into the night and you wake up and you often, you can walk, walk to work with them in the morning or walk to their, to the underground station with the morning. And I, I learned so much. I mean, I, I learned so much from just getting a sense. There was a, stay with a woman who was volunteering in a, in a homeless shelter out towards Stratford. And a lot of the times I was sleeping on people's sofas, but it, it just gave me an amazing insight in a way that is so important for London because London isn't really one place. It's mm. sort of 32 cities connected to each other and you've really got to spend time in all of them. And did you, did you literally stay on your own or did any of your people, your team no, stay I'd, with you? I'd, I'd, I'd stay on my own, um, except one case, I think my friend Will came and stayed once, but generally I'd stay on my own and uh, we'd have sometimes have supper. I'd bring a, I'd bring some milk tray. I'd bring, bring, bring milk tray with me. Milk tray? Yeah, yeah. Cadbury's milk tray. Yeah. Always milk tray? Always Cadbury's milk tray, yeah. Why? Well, because someone had made a joke about my being, you know, the man with the milk tray. So it was just oh, kind of crap joke. I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because then yeah. Matt Hancock was the milk tray man as well, wasn't he? Because he dressed with that. Well, that's because he wore a black, that, that wasn't because he, he, he went in through people's windows for the present. I think okay. it was more because okay. he, he wore a dodgy black polo neck. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's just take a quick break on Rory Stewart, the, the milk tray man. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time. John S., you both seem like very busy people, constantly on the move, traveling to different countries, working on multiple different projects. I wonder what are your tips for work-life balance? I manage communications for a UK diplomatic mission while also having three kids under the age of five. I feel burnt out most days for the struggle of wanting to give my all for the job and also my family. I'm the, I'm the last person to answer that very, very well because I don't think I do it very well at all. The work-life yeah. thing. I mean, I, I th- feel completely burnt out most of the time. I'm, as you know, I'm running this charity give directly, which um, means that I have to be in Africa quite a lot and fundraising in the states quite a lot. Um, and uh, I feel very, very guilty. I've got a an eight year old and a six year old, and I won't see them now for almost three weeks. Oh Lord! So um, I think it's it's tough. It's tough, mm. and I think I think it's tougher. Maybe this isn't true, but I sometimes feel it's tougher for my friends who are women. I think it's particularly tough for Shoshana, who's running a big charity in Afghanistan and Myanmar, and is also having to do an enormous amount of other stuff in the house. I, I think it's pretty tough being a young parent, though, I guess, any gender, because the expectations are generally pretty impossible, aren't they? Yeah. No, I, listen, I'm a lot better than I was in that I, I rest more than I used to. Uh, but I still feel I have to exercise every day. I've been out swimming this morning and I'm doing boxing later on. I've got to exercise. I've got to sort of look after myself. Um, and you know, our kids are grown up, but we still see a lot of them and still worry about them and still want to be kind of connected to them. 
Um, I guess you, I mean, you do have a job, but you also seem with the job to have quite a lot of uh, freedom. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'm the boss, which helps. And a lot of what I'm doing is fundraising. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time I'm traveling around trying to raise money. And it's, it's true, actually, as a member of parliament, too, that you are your own boss as an MP. And you can pretty much, I, MPs do work hard. I mean, whatever we think about them, maybe evil, maybe incompetent, but they do work hard. No, I think very few, are, very few are evil. Some are incompetent, but I agree with you that most work very, very yeah. hard. Yeah. Listen, we've got a couple of a few critical questions this week, which I think we'll come back to later. We've got a lot of people asking, suggesting that we were very dismissive of doctors and the question of why we've got such a problem with training training doctors, which I said we'd come back to. But I, given the the level of the number of people who got in touch to say that they felt we were dismissive, I think we should come back at it when we've really looked into the issue. And here's another one we've got some, we've got a bit of criticism, Fritfly. The most populous country in Africa held an election this year, the results of which remain controversial. I haven't yet heard you guys mention it once. Can you give some thoughts and analysis on Nigeria before the swearing in of Tinubu at the end of the month? In fact, Fritfly, you must have missed the episode where we talked at good length about the election when we've done in Nigeria. Two, we've done a couple of Nigerian episodes. Um, yeah, yeah. We, um, and we talked, we talked quite a lot about Tinubu. Um, I mean, it is, it's very difficult to know who could have brought Nigeria out of its current malaise. But it's difficult, I'm afraid, to believe that Tanubu can because he is absolutely a veteran machine politician. And the guy that the guy that was meant to be sort of breath, breath of fresh air came, I think, came third in the end. Who was Peter Obi? And Tanubu famously had his assets frozen by the U.S. government for heroin dealing in '93. It's 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 pretty worrying. Yeah, Simon C. I'm genuinely interested in your answer to this, and I I I. I, I I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I don't really. I'm an art teacher, says Simon. I wonder how you both feel about art. Are you artists yourself? Do you make time to be creative? Do you have exhibitions or galleries that are favourites? Goodness gracious. I, I, I do paint a little bit. I paint and I draw. My first book, Place in Between, has got, got my drawings in it. Oh, are they yours? They're my drawings, yeah. They're not bad. Not, not okay, yeah. And during COVID, I um, did a bit of bit of watercolour. Um, yeah, and, and art galleries. I mean, a huge shout out if anyone's interested in, in London at the moment. Amazing free exhibition on St. Francis in the National Gallery, if you want to pop down and have a look at it, which has the robe that St. Francis himself wore in the 12th century, has incredible manuscripts, but also paintings and artwork going right the way through to the current day, including film clips on St. Francis. So there's, there's my, my art gallery recommendation. I, I I don't I am I'm the worst probably not the worst but I'm I can't I can't paint and I can't draw and I I really wish that I could I really but, admire but you're much watching. much better at music than I am so there we are yeah but I just wish I could I, I and, and I have I have had a go actually there's a, we've we've got a an artist Sarah Pickstone who lives just up the road from us and 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 she did help me I did a a painting for a for a charity. It was actually to raise funds for a for a swimming pool down in in the West Country, um, and I and actually it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad with her at my side telling me what to do, but I would I would need to have that if I was to if I was to paint. I do like wandering. I do like wandering around art galleries from time to time. Well, my my complete fantasy if if I was going to do something if I managed to retire is I'd love to to make pots. I I love ceramics. I I love the feeling of clay. I'm just an awe of Chinese ceramics, Islamic ceramics, Japanese ceramics. I, I'm, I'd, I'd love to be a potter. 
Okay, there you go. Simon C., when uh, Rory Stewart becomes a potter, he can come along and teach your students how to pot. Uh, well, I've got a good one for you here. Could you both give an example of the fun side of politics? Is If there's a story involved, even better. Any fun stories from politics, Alistair? Oh, God. Well, actually, I can remember one in Japan. Go on, then. We had a, a gathering recently for Tony Blair's 70th birthday, and there was lots of people who were, you know, basically people who worked for him the whole time. And uh, people were remembering some very, very, very good fun times. And I think I've told you the story about Tony once sort of impersonating an Ulster Unionist in the bath in Hillsborough Castle. But the one that popped into my head, because we've been talking about Japan, was when I got a message that he wanted to see me. And this was he was in his, in, in his bedroom at the British Embassy in, in Tokyo. And I walked through and he'd... He discovered he discovered the crash helmet under the bed in case of an earthquake, and there was something surreal about walking in to see Tony Blair lying on his bed wearing a crash helmet, <laughs> pretending that he was in the middle of an earthquake. And, uh, so you know, we had we did have a we had a good laugh quite a lot of the time, and I also think there is a fun in campaigning. I mean, campaigns they can be hellish, and as Bill Clinton once said, election campaigns are the one form of activity that makes everybody look like their passport photo. But elections can be very, very good fun. I can think of lots of really, really good moments. What about you? When did you have fun? Well, I think I think what's amazing about being a politician is that it's one of those rare professions which actually allows you to get into everybody else's house, and I think. There are a couple of other professions that might allow you to do that, maybe a police officer, maybe some kinds of journalists, but basically people often live quite a limited life. You see your friends and you go to their houses. But as a politician, you can, with your constituents, you're knocking on doors, you're going to every village, and you're going to see everything from the grandest houses to the most remote outlying farms to going into people's caravans. And I, 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 I loved it. I, I'm quite nosy. And I, I love the privilege of being able to see every different type of life, being able to spend time with the traveler community or spend time with, you know, help with lambing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of participation. I mean, I spent a lot of time as a politician in strange vehicles, canoes, driving tractors, driving a mole plow, riding horses, um, all as part of being constituency MP. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of fun to be had there, particularly if, if like me, you're lucky enough to represent a remote rural constituency. I don't think it would be quite the same if I was representing Slough. Yeah, but it, w- it would in a way, because you, you, you're absolutely right. It's the same with journalism. I think the thing I used to love about being a journalist is that you could literally walk up to anybody anywhere and start talking to them. Hi, I'm Alistair Campbell from the Daily Mirror. I'm doing a piece about X. And it's incredible. 95 times out of 100, people would talk to you. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I totally love it. And I think it's, it's yeah, I, I would I recommend as a way of getting to know your fellow man. There are very few mm. things as good. So final question, what books we're reading? Um, I put another plug in for Raphael Baer's Amazing Politics, A Survivor's Guide, a wonderful, wonderful book. It's, um, it's great on Russia. It's great on populism. It's great on Britain. And another book strongly recommended, uh, I'm in Japan. It's called Lost Japan by Alex Kerr. And a lot of these recommendations on Japanese books came from Twitter, so I'm oh. hugely, hugely grateful to Twitter. That's um, that's fantastic. If anyone's ever looking for a book, it's just such a brilliant way of of getting book recommendations. That is one of the best. I, I agree with you about that. The, the social media gets a lot of flack, deservedly, but actually, when you 
say when you put things out like anybody know a good book about so and so does anybody know a, a nice restaurant in such and such an area it is amazing how nice people are about sending you information about stuff like that i i i, th- I think it's just absolutely brilliant um and then and then finally i you know i mentioned tanaka kakuya so in our distribution i'm going to send a, a book with a lovely article about tanaka kakuya I am currently reading a book that is was sent to me by my good friend Carl Bernstein. Uh-huh. Um who and it's a book not about Watergate, it's about his life as a young reporter. And uh, any young reporter out there or somebody who wants just to aspire to be a journalist, it's just a brilliant, brilliant account of and you get a sense of why he became one of the greatest journalists of all time. And it's just about his relentless curiosity. Um, and I think that curiosity is one of the most important characteristics for all of, for all of us, frankly, but, but obviously, uh, for, for journalism. And the other thing that I'm, that I'm reading is, uh, it's a short history of Germany. Uh, and it's called How We Became What We Are. Uh, obviously, Auf Deutsch. Very, very good. Well, thank you, Alison. Have a, you know, good luck on the continuing extraordinary success of your book tour and look forward to speaking again next week. A book tour which I will be suspending for the afternoon as I am due to go to court and be a witness in the Prince Harry case. About which we'll hear more in the next podcast coming up soon. Thank <laughs> you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.